This episode of Milestones contains explicit language that may not be suitable for some listeners. This is Milestones in partnership with WBGO Studios. I'm your host, Angelica Wiener. Welcome to the podcast. I am always so glad that you're here joining me. Here we take deep dives into milestone moments in music and culture during landmark years. On this episode, it's truly a family affair with my special guest, drummer, band leader, recording artist, and educator, T.S. Monk. He joins us for a special two-part episode as we celebrate the 60th anniversary of Thelonious Monk's 1963 classic, Monk's Dream. In part one, we focus on T.S.'s beginnings as a young drummer and his iconic father's guidance and wisdom along the way. We also talk about his successful 80s R&B and dance music period and his pivot back to his jazz origins at the top of the 1990s. 32 years later, his most recent release, Two Continents, One Groove, topped the jazz charts last summer. He also shares the incredible moment when he realized that his father was not just dad. This and so much more. Let's get into it. I want to welcome you to the show and say what an honor it is to be sitting here talking to you. It always is. Stop. It's a gas to be here with you. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, the funniest thing is that to begin with, to begin with, if we're going to talk about my musical career, my musical career actually started when I was 12 years old and I was taking trumpet lessons from your father. Isn't that wild? It's wild. It's totally wild. You know, it's like I'm saying, is this like real is you know sometimes life you know the truth is always better than the fiction although <laughs> the damn trumpet it hurt my face <laughs> i thought it was the coolest instrument in the world but when i put that trumpet up to my mouth i said oh no this is not going to work for me <laughs> so, so- were you originally drawn to trumpet? Was was, was it a natural? Drawn, I was originally drawn to the trumpet, and um, you know your 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 um, late dad uh, was an extraordinary trumpet player, and um, I think it's a tribute to how talented he was at the time because he wasn't that much older than me. You know, I was twelve; he was probably twenty-one or twenty-two, maybe at the most. And the fact that my father, Thelonious Monk, trusted him to teach me tells you something about what Thelonious thought of your father's talent. Wow. That that's perspective. Yeah, rest in peace, Pop. And that that's amazing. That is that is quite an honor. So this must be a trip for you, full circle. <laughs> full circle. And I remember when you came into this world too. You know, so um, this is this is wonderful, you know, to see you have developed into such a wonderful talent, not only as a pod show host, but as a wonderful writer that um, is lauded by everybody you've ever worked for, you know, including one of my old bosses, Bruce Lundvall over at Blue Note, you know, who spoke, you know, and everyone in the office spoke so highly of you. And you have a wonderful son. 
uh, looks like he's going to turn out to be quite the musician himself. And it looks like Riley's all over the place because he's on the piano and he's on the drums and he's on this and he's on that. And uh, he's got good genes, music genes coming in from everywhere, you know, <laughs> whether it's directly from his daddy or from his uncle Thelonious or from me or just everybody. It's all around him. So uh, I wish him very, very well in his Aww. musical career, wherever it goes also. Oh, thank you so much. And, um, you know, it, it it takes a village, as I, I know you know, um, you know, when you got your first drum set, who gave you your first drum set? Art Blakey gave me my first drum set, you know, <laughs> and I still teach myself. I say, you know, that's like ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, it's a funny thing because my father and Art Blakey were really, really best of friends. And uh, so I knew Art, you know, I think I knew Art's face before I knew my father's brother's face. And my father's brother lived next door, you know, but my father was hanging out with Art Blakey. They were just as thick as thieves. In fact, I'll tell you a little a little story because I always got little stories. Love you know, it. When, when Art started the Jazz Messengers, you know, Art was a drummer. And actually, quite frankly, uh, to be honest, in the 1930s and 40s and before that, drummers weren't really considered musicians. You have musicians and then you had drummers. It was Max Roche that sort of moved drummers into the musician category. But Art was certainly one of the most brilliant band leaders we ever had. And uh, when Art Blakey started the Jazz Messengers in those days, in the late 40s and early 50s, when you went to a club owner and said, I have a band, you know, it didn't, they didn't rely on your strength as a musician in particular. The first question out of their mouth would be, well, who's in the band? You dig? Because mm. that would determine, you know, like where the band could go and what it could really do. And Art went around all over New York City saying, you know, I, I'm starting this new band and I'm going to call it Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. And the question was, well, who's in the band? Well, he would say, oh, Monk is in the band <laughs> because everybody knew that Monk was a writer. You see, so that ensured that the band was going to really have some music. But Art Blakey gave me my first drum set, and I'm I'm very grateful for that. And um, of course, my father sent me to Max Roach's house, uh, you know, to uh, to get some knowledge. And uh, I'm grateful for that. They're, to me, they're kind of equals, you know, in terms of their impact on me, you mm. know, as a, as a as a drummer. In fact, all of those guys, when you're talking about Art Blakey and you're talking about Elvin Jones and you're talking about Max Roach and you're talking about Roy Haynes and just a whole group of guys that were at the top of their game. When I was a little kid, you know, in the, in the mid 50s, you know, all of them, you know, the fact that my father made sure that I knew all of them and had me hanging around all of them, I think has a lot to do with, you know, my success and the diversity of my music over the years, because, I, you know, I learned there are a lot of great, great drummers in the world today. I mean, guys with unbelievable chops and guys with facility that you just say, wow, you know, what's going on? But the list of drummer band leaders over the years is not very, very long. 
there's probably, I mean, and when I say drummer band leaders, I mean, you know, guys that established themselves as a band leader and were able to do that and consistently get top billing, consistently make records for a period of, you know, like 20, 25 years. The list is is actually relatively short. You know, you got 500,000 saxophone band leaders and trumpet band leaders and piano band leaders. But when it comes to drummers, you know, the list, you know, it's like, you know, Max Roach and Art Blakey and Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, you know, uh, Shelly Mann and Chico Hamilton, uh, Chick Webb and Big Sid Catlett, you know. But the list is just not very, very long. Mm -hmm. And I'm in my 29th year and I feel very, I feel very, very proud to have been able to do that as a band leader for so long. So what I learned, what I learned from all those guys that I came up with was that um, if you're a drummer band leader, you first of all, you're not confined to melody, okay? Mm -hmm. The way a saxophonist or a trumpeter or a guitarist or a piano player are, are somewhat confined to melody. So you have to do lots of other things, you know? That's why, you know, Max Roach ended up, had Max Roach and Clifford Brown. He had his, his, he had his double quintet. He had his Oom Boom Orchestra. You know, Buddy Rich, you know, had his big band, you know, uh, uh, Roy Haynes, his hip ensemble, all of that. And so I learned that um, you got to make a lot of different kinds of music, you know, and, uh, and, and you can't rely on drum solos, which is the biggest mistake young drummers make when they want to become band leaders. Because you know what, I, Angelica, I had to realize Nobody understands a drum solo. <laughs> Nobody understands a drum solo. You know, when we play a solo, this is this is the process. It's incredible. I really checked it out. You know, the drummer starts to take a solo and everybody notices, oh, nobody's playing with the drummer. So the drummer must be taking a solo. Now the drummer plays a little bit and people go, wow, that's interesting. He's doing a lot of different things at the same time. And then he plays a little bit more and people go, uh-huh, uh-huh. But they don't know what he's doing because people don't understand polyrhythm. They understand boom, 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 right? But he's doing all this stuff and he's got cymbals over here and tom-toms over there and pedal over there and he does more and people go, yeah. And he does more and they go, yeah. And he goes more and he go, yeah. And that's the drum solo. <laughs> So you can't rely on, and then nobody remembers what the hell he did because nobody knows what he did, right? So what you do, what I found that all of those guys that I just named, the famous drum leaders have in common is that they had great bands around them. Mm -hmm. And they played great music, right? And when I was younger, I'd go to a dance maybe, and there's a band playing, right? And the, the dances that I went to where the drummer was like, I mean, this cat had all this facility, he could play everything in the world. You know, people would end, end up saying, you know, I'd say, you know, how'd you like the band? Well, I like the band, but you know, the drummer was, you know, he was kind of in the way, he was, he was too busy. Now, when I went to the dance where the drummer was just, man, chopping that wood and dropping, just dropping that rhythm, then say, how'd you like the band? Oh, I love the band and the drummer was great. 
Got you. The pot they they just stay in the pocket. In the pocket. In the groove. That's what they want from the drummer. So that's what I learned about uh, uh, being a drummer band leader. And, you know, as Duke Ellington said, it don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. So I've been just trying to swing for 40 years and it's worked out pretty well for me. I'd say so. I'd absolutely say so. I mean, but does that take uh, a certain humility? Because maybe, you know, you want to do all the things, but you have to, like you said, to be successful in this and to resonate with the people, it takes a level of maybe, would you call it restraint? And does that get in the way the word, of the ego? The, the, the word you used, humility, I think was the perfect word. Look, this is the reality. Drums are background. We're not foreground. We are background. You dig? Bass is background. You know, for years, I don't think anybody knew who the hell Cool was because Cool was the little bass player in the back of the band. Everybody thought Cool was some of one of them guys out front singing and dancing and all that. You know, it's the same thing with the drums. I'm the drummer. So we lead from behind. Mm -hmm. Lead from behind. We are the pulse of the band. So I don't have to force myself down everybody's throat by playing drum solos, inconsequential drum solos, every composition. In fact, if you listen to my discography, I've taken very few drum solos on my records. Mm -hmm. But my records have done very, very well, including my most recent record, which I think I took one drum solo on my most recent recording. Right. But it went to number two on the charts. It yeah. sure did. Yes. You know? Congratulations on that. Two yeah. continents, one groove on Storyville. Yeah. Features pianist Helen Sung, saxophonist Willie Williams and Patience Higgins, trumpeter Josh Evans, Kenny Davis on bass and guitarist Dave Stryker. And their live sessions, right, that were performances yeah. from both Harlem and Switzerland. And like you said, it's it's doing so well. I'm so proud of you. It's, I mean, I'm not surprised, but congratulations on all of that. And how did that come together? Uh, that came together because I hadn't put out an album in, see, I keep saying like 10 years, but I've been informed by those close to me that it's actually been 13 years since I did my last album. And when the pandemic came along, you know, I noticed everybody was kind of like, just what can I release? I got to release something, you know, because I can't I can't do any gigs. And so uh, I just started perusing recordings that I had done over the last five or six years. And um, I said, you know, I got some swinging stuff here, man. It, 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 you know, I, I ain't been joking. And so but I had done some stuff at Jenny's in Harlem. And I'd done something over in Switzerland. And um, when I listened to both sessions, I said, why? If I take something from here and something from there, um, it might work out. And the reason I named it Two Continents, One Groove um, was not because of the music. It was because of the band. In fact, that uh, uh, title was actually coined by a wonderful BGO DJ by the name of Sheila Anderson. She she actually came up with that title for, for me. But 
my point was that, you know, I noticed that sometimes you will listen to a band in L.A. and say, man, they rocking. And then you listen to the same band in New York and you say, what happened? What's going on? Is this the same band? And what I found was in both of these environments, I had the same band. The recordings were maybe two years apart, but the band was rocking in bo on both continents. And that was the one groove. It was two continents, but the band was consistent. And that, you know, that's the hardest thing to do in mm -hmm. jazz is to sound good everywhere you go. Now, mm. you take a band like Miles Davis circa 1958, 59, when he had Cannonball and Coltrane and Red Garland and uh, Philly Joe Jones and Paul Chambers, you know, they could set up in a telephone booth and, and hit and boom. You know, you got so what? And you got straight no chasing. You got all these tunes. Or you take Monk with Charlie Rouse and Ben Riley and Larry Gales. They could set up, in, you know, but that generation set the bar so high. It was so high. It's like ridiculous, you know? And that's why we love those records to this day. The records are now, those records are like, I mean, so what is what, 60-something years old? And yeah. every time you put it on, all you can say is, God damn. <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> it's so, so true. I felt it, it really is true. So I felt that it was, you know, I was very, very fortunate to have the same group of people, right, playing so consistently, years apart. Another part of good band leading, right, it's not always about being the star of the show. What it is about is creating, especially in jazz, is creating an environment that people feel like they are at home. And when mm. people are at home, they are comfortable. And when people are comfortable, that's when their best foot comes forward. And I've always relied on my ability to create an environment in a band setting, in an ensemble setting, where everybody feels like they have value, where everybody feels like they're going to have their opportunity to put their best foot forward and be appreciated. So when I finish every gig I think I've ever done, the first thing out of my mouth is praise for the band. Yeah. Praise for the individuals that are participating because this is a team. Jazz is a team effort. I don't care how good you are as an individual. Mm -hmm. You are no stronger than the weakest link, link in your band. and you have to let people know that you appreciate them. Mm -hmm. you know, an interesting thing happened to me. Uh, and, you, you know, when, when you work, you know, I had the great fortune to work with my father. Yes. Uh, band at the very beginning of my career. And one night we were playing in the Village Vanguard and I learned an extraordinarily valuable lesson that evening. So we're playing this tune. And I jammed the time up. I turned it around. Mm -hmm. Now, jazz, to a great degree, is about recovery. You know, you go someplace, 
And how do you get out of there in a way that nobody knows that you got out of there? You did. So I recovered. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm with Thelonious Monk, and the joint is packed, and we come off the bandstand. And, you know, applause like crazy, right? And I'm standing in the, uh, in the kitchen in the vanguard, right? Uh, and because that was the kind of like the only dressing room was the old kitchen, right? So I'm standing in there and there's a crowd of people around me, right? And I'm signing autographs and soaking up accolades and all of this, right? And I feel this presence come next to me. And it was my father, right? Mm-hmm. Lean down and excuse my French, but he said to me, Stop fucking up the time, motherfucker. <laughs> right? In front of in front of your fans. In front, in front of my fans, right? And I said, oh shit. This <laughs> is the object lesson. Yeah. It wasn't that I had messed up the time. It was the lack of acknowledgement to the rest of the band. I knew that that was his objection. I didn't come off the bandstand and say, oh, man, you know, I've jammed up that bridge, man. I'm, I'm really sorry, fellas. I'll get that right the next time. Respect. Yeah. The team effort. It's a team effort. And when you don't get it right, say you didn't get it right. Yeah. Apologize. Mm-hmm. And I learned that on, that on that evening. And so all of these little things are parts of band leading that I try to convey to to younger drummers and young young jazz musicians when they want to start a band. I tell you, you got to have great music. You got to get the best musicians you can. You have to respect them all. You you want everybody to do, you know, as Quincy said with uh, 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 We Are The World, get everybody, hang hang your ego at the door. Leave your ego at the door, you Mm -hmm. dig? And when you do that, and everybody really steps up. And when someone is soloing, don't stomp all over them. You know, don't act like when they're soloing, you're soloing. No, step back and give them the room so that they can play their shit, as we say. You dig? Those are the kinds of things that make for a great band. And those are the things that I've always seen that were common, whether it was Art Blakey the Jazz Messengers, or Miles with Coltrane, or Duke Ellington's big band, you know, or mm-hmm. Monk with Rouse. All of those bands, they all had that in common. Max Roach with Clifford Brown, they all had that in common where everybody let everybody flow. Mm-hmm. Let everybody do their thing. And, you know, so I've been operating like that, and it's worked out pretty well for me. It it really has. I mean, as I said, your career is 40 plus years at this point. Um, I believe your first album as a leader was in 1980. Uh, But even before that, uh, working with uh, Natural Essence and and really and and your dad before that, uh, what what fascinates me about you is you can have the village, but it takes you to be a sponge and to be listening and to be downloading all of that. And what I admire, one of the main, many things that I admire about you is how it seemingly conscious you were of how important that was at a young age. And I, when I think about 
you saying as a drummer band leader, it's important to be versatile. I mean, man, have you been versatile? I mean, you started oh, off yeah. your career, obviously playing jazz and under the tutelage of folks like uh, Max Roach and, and Art Blakey and your father, of course. But then, I mean, because you're a kid of your generation, you're checking out what's what's happening. And then you, you have this incredible run with R&B, first with uh, House of Music, and then more of the good life and human and Merck and Monk and, and the, the 80s just, you know, was funk. You guys had several hits. Uh, you, you guys, meaning you, your sister, Barbara Boo Boo Monk and Yvonne Fletcher, who were the T.S. Monk, the great R&B band, which still today is like you throw it. I remember during the pandemic, I have to tell you this real quick. Uh, you know, D-Nice had started his club quarantine I know. And, and at first it was, you know, 100, 200 of us in there. Those of us who really know D-Nice, you know, he does the parties and we go and we're big fans since his days with BDP, KRS-One and all of that stuff. And DJ Scott LaRock. And so I felt like his his people, his folks were in there. And then within like a week, you had Michelle Obama and Quincy Jones and Nile Rogers and all these people in the room. And I kid you not, cousin, every time he played you know, Bon Bon V or, or, you know, or something from your 80s chapter of your illustrious career. I mean, everybody went nuts. I've even seen D-Nice play it in person, yeah, you know, well, and it, I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, I was, when I came, you know, I went to private school, boarding school. And when I came out, I was very, very lucky. Um, a girlfriend that I had, her stepfather was a bass player, a wonderful bass player that worked with uh, many years, worked with my father, worked with lots of people, but he worked with Cannonball Adderley. Uh, his name was Walter Booker. And Booker had a studio on 87th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. And she took me to that studio. And I think that that my experiences at that studio and the the, the people I ran into at that studio really were responsible for my musical diversity because I run into this crew and became part of this crew. Now, you know who was in this crew? Lay it on me. Nat Adderley Jr., Ray Chu, Kenny Kirkland, Angela Bofield. Come on. Alex Blake. I mean, it was, it was absolutely ridiculous. That's where I met Yvonne Fletcher. Uh, Buddy Williams, one of the, another great drummer, and they had all graduated from music and art high school, right? And I hadn't gone to music and art, but they embraced me, and we just we just played all kinds of, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Now Kenny Kirkland and Ray Chu, they were almost like the babies of the group. They were a few years younger than all of us, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, director of uh, uh, Brooklyn uh, Conservatory, Earl McIntyre, was part of the group. You know, uh, Cannonball used to rehearse there. So at this studio, which was called Boogie Woogie Studio, it was in an apartment. Cannonball used to rehearse there. Uh, Aeta Morera and, and, and uh, Flora Purim used to rehearse there. You know... I remember this guy. This guy had a big record. Bye bye, Miss American Pie. 
drove the Chevy to the levee, and the levee was dry. Yes. He used to rehearse there. I forget his name, but he used to rehearse there. And Sarah Vaughn used to hang out there. And the environment was just so, so damn musical, you know? And that sort of set me up. Also, also, um, historically, um, and I want you, your, your, your viewers and your listeners to understand this because this is something that is not talked about very often. This was the mid-70s, early and mid-70s. For us young jazz musicians, by the mid-70s, that was the low point for jazz in America. Mm -hmm. Even the record companies stopped putting liner notes on the albums. It was like crazy. And liner notes, you know, are, are part and parcel to jazz, right? And the clubs had closed. Birdland had closed and the Village Gate had closed and all these clubs around New York had closed. And so for my generation, which in 1975, I was 25, right? There was no such thing as a young lion. That wouldn't mm. happen until the early 80s, right? So nobody would, there was no redemptive value to being a young burgeoning jazz musician. There were no gigs. So what happened? Something extraordinary happened, right? We started asking each other, hey man, what are you doing this weekend? And you know what cats would say and gals would say? Well, I gotta go play this boogaloo gig to make money. And what happened was there was this tremendous infusion from jazz into R&B music. And that gave us the Commodores, the Blackbirds, Earth, Wind & Fire, Slave, Confunction, Jazz Band, all of the, and all the sense of, all the musical sensibilities from jazz, the electric piano, the electric guitar via Cornell Dupree and Wes Montgomery, as opposed to the Fender Rose of rock and roll, right? The open and closed hi-hat of disco, which came from Art Blakey. All of these things went into R&B music and gave us the classic R&B that your generation and sub subsequent generations have been sampling like crazy to create hip hop. It's unbelievable. But I was part of that exchange of information, right? And it was tremendous. Nobody really talks about it, but historically for black music, it was a tremendous turning point, the mid seventies, in terms of the intellect mm -hmm. that went into the production skills, you know? And so when you listen to the records of the late seventies and the early eighties, when you put them on, you when you put your headphones on and listen to those productions, those Earth, Wind & Fire productions, you know, those Commodore productions, they were unbelievable from a production standpoint. It's, you know, so I'm a product, a product of that great, great, those great, great times and the production skills that I learned in R&B. And by the way, you know, I have to say, you know, um, I was never really an R&B artist. Even Bon Bon V is not really an R&B record. It went to the pop charts. You know, I've always, because my sensibilities come more from jazz than they come from 
Motown or Stax, you know, or those kind of tunes. So that's another reason why my music has always been so diverse. But if you listen to the House of Music album, it's not really an R&B album. It's music. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just plain old good music. I'm in the studio finishing up a smooth jazz funk recording. I, you know, I was going through old demos, right? And I came across a demo that predates Bon Bon V. It's actually the demo that got me, got us the deal to do Bon Bon V. And later on in the fall, I'm going to be releasing that, which is. It has my sister and Yvonne on it. I recorded it 45 years ago. By the time I release it, it'll be 46 years old. And that's like another, you know, that joke. I said, you know, I'm just going to confuse my audience. Because we're, <laughs> we're in a new era where, you know, you no longer are confined to release dates and all that kind of stuff. And you got, you know, records that you sell and records that you stream and you know, you got, you know, uh, 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 social media and all this stuff. I said, I'm going to exploit it all. And I'm just going to do all the things that I can do, you know, at the tender age of 73, because I did not expect that the music industry would be as like the Wild West <laughs> at this point <laughs> in my life. But right now, the music industry is like the Wild West, you know, I'm looking yeah. at, you know, I'm looking at Rihanna on the Super Bowl and I'm saying, wow, Rihanna on the Super Bowl. That's that right there is like amazing. I mean, if you want to talk about a bastion of right wing tradition, the Super Bowl is a bastion of right wing tradition. And yet and still they felt Rihanna fit like a glove and she did fit like a glove in their halftime show. Yes. So we can do sort of anything and 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 your younger generation, you all are like so you just dig y'all dig everything. Y'all like, you know, you know what I found out? Mm. Y'all like to just keep it real. <laughs> whoever you whoever you are, be whoever you are. You know, if you come across full of shit, we're gonna call you out for that. But it just be who you are and it's all good. And that's what I found that's available to me now. So, you know, career-wise, I don't know where where it's going to go. I'm just doing all the things I can do and having a ball. Amazing. 
I love it. Did you feel that sense of um, freedom when you, in 1991, you released First Take, and this is sort of like you coming, your your coming out party as a as I guess an official jazz band leader to the press anyway, or at least that's how it's marketed as you know now he's he's made this paradigm shift. Did it feel like a shift in that way, or did it feel like you were saying earlier, like this is just music and these are the facets of who I am? No, I'll tell you why. Because in 1991. Um, America was still a country that didn't like, they didn't like you changing horses in midstream, you know? So I remember, you know, Barbara Streisand put her toe in the disco and everybody said, get the fuck out of here. And Donna Summers was trying to be a country Western artist and everybody said, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> you know, so me coming back to jazz was truly scary. It was truly scary, and I had no idea how I was going to be accepted because even even the great jazz uh, uh, promoter um, um, George Ween of the Newport Jazz Festival, you know, when he used to see, he knew me since I was a little boy, and when he used to see me, say, "Hey T, how's that rock and roll going?" Right now, I was never a rock and roll artist, right. as far as he was concerned. I was so far away from jazz. I was into rock and roll, you know? And um, and the great tenor saxophone player, Illinois Jackette, who worked with me at the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz. He looked me in the eye and he said, uh, you know, Monk, because I had stopped playing. He said, uh, you know, you can, never, you can never recover those six years, right? So I had all these things that said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But I said, I'm going to give it a shot. My father used to say, you got to put your stuff out there and either the people will dig you or they don't. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody dealt with that like Thelonious Monk dealt with that, you know? And so I said, I'm going to go. Pop said, either people will dig you or they don't. And so I put out Take One. And um, the first gig I did, I took I took Take One to George Ween at the Newport Jazz Festival. And the first thing he said was, well, how's that rock and roll going for you, T? Right? And I said, well, George, you know, I, you know, I want to I wanna do jazz again. And uh, I need a gig. And you got the gigs. And um, he said to me, he said, well, I, you know, I only got, you know, I can, I can put you on the Playboy Jazz Festival, right? Which I said, wow. He said, but you know what? It's a three-day festival. And the only opening I got is the first gig on the first day. And I said, oh, man, well, I guess nobody's going to be there, but I'll, ta- I'll take it, right? So I went out to California. Bruce Lundvall at Blue Note had picked up Take One. And I went out to California. And we go to the sound check for the Playboy Jazz Festival. And, you know, that's a festival where people come out over three days and they bring their picnic baskets and the whole nine yards, you know. It's at the Hollywood Bowl, right? Yeah, at the Hollywood Bowl. Mm -hmm. And I told my band, I said, hey, look, guys, this is the first gig I got. And there's probably not going to be anybody there. But 
it's a gig and we are, I'm getting started. So we went to the sound check at about 10 o'clock in the morning and the place was empty. Place was empty. And I said, hey, you see, you know, uh, maybe we get a few hundred people by the time we hit at noon, because we are going to hit at noon, right? Especially in L.A., you know, everybody's partying all damn night. Mm -hmm. We did our sound check. Bill Cosby was the host. And we went back to the hotel. And we came back at about 1145 to hit at 12 noon. Mm -hmm. And there were 19,000 people there. Oh, my goodness. Everybody wanted to know what this T.S. Monk guy, this Thelonious Monk's son guy was all about. And the next day on the um, in the L.A. Times, in the entertainment section, there was a huge article basically said, if you if you were going to the jazz festival, the Hollywood Bowl, the play play, it was the Playboy Jazz Festival. If you're going to the Playboy and you missed the first act on the first day, that was the best act in the whole concert. Wow. And, and that's how my career got started as a jazz musician, you know, officially as a jazz band. Right. And I realized that they had accepted me and uh, I, was the, I felt like the luckiest man in the world. And I'm very, very grateful uh, to the writers and to my band and, Bill Cosby and George Ween and all those people, because, you know, you have to realize I was getting back to jazz at 41 years old, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I wasn't a spring chicken, you know, and um, and I had seen other people try to, you know, move around. And I knew that America was very funny with you moving around, you know, but again, I go back to Duke Ellington. He said, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got swing. But if it's swinging, if it is, in fact, if you are swinging, the one thing about the jazz audience is that hype doesn't work. Mm -hmm. you know, that's why, you know, you have these kids that come on and say, oh, this is the next John Coltrane. And people go see him and say, nope. Oh, this is the next Charlie Parker. And people go see him and say, nope. But if you are swinging, the jazz community will dig you. Because my father said, you know, when you read your reviews, you start believing them. Mm. He said, you know, and the same writer who says they love you this week 
six weeks from now will say you're the worst actor that ever lived. Mm. So it's better not to read any reviews. And I took his word because he had been the victim of terrible reviews for years. And it's a funny thing. I can't find anybody on the planet Earth in jazz and outside jazz that says, oh, I don't dig Thelonious Monk. Nobody will admit, you know, I, this is the analogy I always use. When Michael Jordan was playing in, 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 high, in, in college, Mm -hmm. was at North Carolina. The star of that team was James Worthy, you know? And there was nobody sitting there in the stands talking about, oh, you know that kid, Michael Jordan, he's going to become the greatest basketball player we ever saw. But today, when you talk to people about Michael Jordan, they say, oh, man, I knew Michael. Oh, oh yeah, I knew he was going to be the baddest captain in the world. So they lie because nobody wants to say, I didn't see it. Nobody will admit. They didn't see it, but people come along and when they're really ahead of their time, like Thelonious Monk, people don't see it at yeah. the time, you know? And so, you know, my father, he's a typical victim of genius, you know? Genius is, very, genius is ahead of its time. And when things are ahead of its time, people like to go with what they know. And genius generally, uh, deals with something that people don't know. So they, they don't see it, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, Thelonious knew about bad, uh, bad reviews. And mm -hmm. that's why I don't re read reviews. But I'll tell you another interesting story because I always got all these crazy stories. So I start the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz in 1987, right? Mm -hmm. And the jazz community just floods in to, to help out in the name of Monk. Right. And uh, one day we get a call, I think around 1990. We were just really getting off the ground. We get a call from probably the most famous jazz critic in the history of jazz, a fellow named Leonard Feather. Leonard Feather wrote terrible things about Thelonious Monk. I think primarily because he was a frustrated piano player. Let's he talk about that. Couldn't do it himself, but he's writing all this bad stuff. And Leonard Feather is the only cat that I know that Thelonious actually caught him outside of the musicians' union one day and threw him on the wall and said, look, I'm trying to feed my family. Mm -hmm. Don't like me? Don't write about me. Write about the cats you do like. Leave mm -hmm. me alone. But anyway, he calls up and he says, I want to be part of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz, right? And my people, they call me and they say, Leonard Feather called, right? I call my mother and I say, Ma, do you know this motherfucker, Leonard Feather, wants to be part of the Monk Institute and he's got a hell of a fucking nerve. Hell no, hell no, hell no. And you know what your Aunt Nellie told me? Mm -mm. She said, you know what, too? There were millions of people that did not get it when your father showed up. Mm -hmm. And you have to allow people to grow and learn and understand. And here we are 25 years later and Leonard Feather gets it. And you gotta let him get it. 
let him grow. Let him help you with the Monk Institute. And she was dead right. Mm. And I went on to let, and, and I ended up saying, join us, Leonard. And he became one of the greatest proponents of the Monk Institute. He gave me fabulous reviews until the day he died. And I learned that, you know, you got to allow people to grow. You mm-hmm. got to allow people to learn. This intransience that we have where, oh, he said so-and-so. He's 86 years old, but did you see what he said when he was 19? <laughs> you, you, you know? And we we got a lot of that going on in the country today. And I say, you got you got to let that go. You got to let people go. You got to let people grow. And you evolve. Know? Yeah. Let yeah. Evolve because people do evolve. I've got thoughts in my head now I didn't have when I was 23. Yeah. And things I was thinking of at 23 that I'd say that was stupid. I was stupid at 23. So, you know, I've I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. And, and like I said, I've been having a ball. Yes. You know, it's, it's, I think this is a perfect segue into Monk's dream because it comes out at a time, uh, we're talking 1963. I mean, this is prime. I mean, Monk is just on top of the world in terms of critical acclaim and the press is loving everything he does. You know, he can sneeze and it's, you know, going to make the front cover of, you know, whatever. Um, from your vantage, though, I'm sure that felt great. Was there also, because this is a human being we're talking about, like you even just the story you just told me about him saying, look, man, I'm trying to feed my family here. This is someone who I would imagine had to have been emo- affected in some way by this. So by 1963, 1964, he's on the cover of Time. What did you glean as a 14, 15-year-old at that time uh, and even younger, what were those polarizing moments like for him? And what did he think of the praise when they finally caught up to the genius of Thelonious Monk? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, what he thought of it at that point uh, was really encapsulated in the first few minutes of a uh, a documentary we did later on after he passed away called Straight No Chaser, where he's being interviewed by a guy named Bob Jones who was who had worked for George Ween. And he was looking through the jazz encyclopedia and he finds Thelonious's name. And he says, Thelonious, here you are in the jazz encyclopedia. And Thelonious says, wow, you mean I'm famous? Ain't that a bitch, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because he had been he had been so abused by the press and, and, and abused in general as an African-American in, you know, uh, in America. I mean, he'd been beaten up by the police. He had been subjected to terrible, terrible reviews, you know. And so he always felt your uncle was very, very confident in that he always felt the world would eventually catch up with him. Mm-hmm. He always, I always got the feeling that he he felt that you know everybody's just behind the beat. I you know I, I what I'm doing is is happening for me. I didn't get it all. I didn't get it at all, and I'll tell you why. Because I didn't discover who my father was 
for another six years until I was 19 years old mm-hmm. because I grew up with this guy, you know, and it's very confusing as a young child when people say to you, do you know who your father is? And you're saying, a daddy, did you know? Uh, and um, I remember distinctly, I knew he was struggling a little bit. Okay, I, I had been able to glean that. Not the not the uh, the inner, you know, not the, the bottom line on what that struggle was, but I could tell he was struggling because we were living in 63rd Street. It was a tiny little apartment. I was going to a fancy, fancy private school. All my friends, their parents drove Cadillacs and lived in places like Scarsdale and Shaker Heights, Cleveland and all this kind of stuff. So I knew we were struggling. Um, but, you know, your Aunt Nellie and, and your Uncle Thelonious, for me and Boo Boo, they kept that away from us for the, for the most part. You know, so that I, I didn't really didn't really feel it, you know. And people would say things to me like, you know, 50 years from now, your father is going to be, you know, 10 times bigger than he is today. And, you know, I'm watching all these people, you know, these superstars live and die. And, you know, two years after they're dead, they, they don't nobody even mention their name again. So I'm, I'm figuring I've, a lot. Dad has a lot of enthusiastic fans, you know, <laughs> but I don't know what this is, you know, about 50 years from now, because when you're eight or nine years old, 50 years sounds like 500 years from now. Exactly. You know, so I'm not getting it at all. And, you know, I started playing drums when I was 15 and all this kind of stuff. But I really didn't know that Thelonious had really the impact that he had had on Miles, the Mm -hmm. impact that he had had on Coltrane, the impact that he had had on you know, Bud Powell and so many, uh, Sonny Rollins and so many other musicians. I just, I just didn't understand that from an artistic standpoint. Uh, But in 1969, the summer of 1969, I had been playing drums for like four solid years. I've been practicing, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of serious. And stereo showed up, right? And um, in those days, you didn't have Radio Shack, but you had a company called Lafayette Electronics. They were like the Radio Shack of their day. And you went to, you know, if you wanted to build something electronically, you went to Lafayette's. And they had a big store down on Canal Street, you know, a regional store. So I went down there and I buy these parts for a speaker because I'm going to build me a stereo. But I don't, I haven't, I haven't figured out that, you know, stereo, two speakers. You know, it's about two speakers. <laughs> I go and I buy this one speaker. And I go home and I build this one. And it was gigantic. It was like a 15-inch speaker and had a cabinet and everything. I mean, just piling this thing in the cab to get it home was unbelievable. But I build this speaker, right? And I, I'll never forget, it was a summer day in 1969. And I build the speaker and I say to myself, I got to test my speaker. but I'm not putting on my Sly and the Family Stone. I'm not putting on my Motown record because I don't want to blow my speaker out. And I pick up this trio record about with my, my father and Oscar Pettiford on bass and Art Blakey on drums. But it's a trio. Mm-hmm. I put this record on and I lay down on the floor and I stick my ear in the speaker. 
And this particular tune, a really difficult tune called Work. And that's the first tune on the record, and I play it. And the head of the tune goes by, and I say, wow, what, what was that daddy just played? And I played it again. And I played it again. And I spent the next, like, 35, 40 minutes replaying the head of this tune. Mm -hmm. And it, that day, in 1969, that I realized that this guy sleeping on the other side of my wall that had been listening to me bang these drums all day and night was Thelonious Monk. Mm. Daddy and Thelonious Monk did like that. Wow. And it, it was, it was, it's like an epiphany for me. You know, I realized that's, so that's when I got who it was. But back in 1963, even with the cover of Time magazine and all that, I didn't get it. And yeah. you have to remember in 1963, um, Time Magazine, it wasn't like this. You couldn't sell five million records and get on the cover of Time Magazine back in that day. That Back in that day, the cover of Time Magazine was reserved for Winston Churchill, Dag Hammarskjöld, you know, people like that. John Kennedy, you know, Johnson. I mean, those. so for Monk to be on the cover of Time Magazine was completely over the top. But I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. My friends at private school, their parents got it because my stock at school went through the roof. I couldn't get thrown out of that school. There was nothing I could do to get thrown out of that school. <laughs> Man, are you kidding? They had Monk's son and Monk's on the cover of Time magazine. Forget about it. You know, so, you know, and, and but what I did realize also from a musical standpoint, was that, like you said, my father was in the zone, man. Mm -hmm. He had in 1963 with Frankie Donlop, mm -hmm. Don Orr, and Charlie Rouse. Man, they were rocking. And in fact, it's funny you mentioned Monk's Dream because that was my favorite to this day. That is my favorite Monk recording, is that version of Monk's Dream on that album. for joining us for part one of this two-part discussion with T.S. Monk. 
Be sure to come back for part two as we get further into the 1963 classic Monk's Dream and celebrate its 60th anniversary this month. Listen on your smart speaker by saying, play milestones celebrating the culture. And if you're enjoying this content, please be sure to subscribe and review this episode on Apple Podcasts. Milestones is a production of WBGO Studios. Production assistance by Corey Goldberg. Theme music by Riley Glasper. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup at wbgo.org slash studios.